Welcome again to the Agile Coffee Podcast. This is episode 34. The show notes for this episode can be found at agilecoffee.com slash episode 34. And I wanted to let you know that we've got a surprise in store for you for episode 35. It'll be a bit longer, but it's going to be our very first episode that we recorded online. Usually these episodes are recorded face-to-face in a room, but we are trying something new next time around where we go virtual. And while that's something to look forward to, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. So in the meantime, I ask you to sit back, relax, and enjoy the coffee of episode 34. Welcome again to the Agile Coffee Podcast. This is Victor Bonacci. You can reach me on Twitter at Agile Coffee. Uh, around the table, I'm very privileged to be joined by my friends Dale and Larry. Good morning, Dale. Morning. Glad to be here once again. Dale can be reached on Twitter at the Digital Dale and Larry Lawhead. Glad to be here again. It's there. always lots of fun. It's been a while since uh, since we had uh, the both of you together. Larry can be reached on Twitter at Larry Lawhead. And, uh, and it's a beautiful day here outside in front of the coffee bean and tea leaf, uh, in Irvine, California. Who wants to go first and read their cards? I'll, I'll go first here. I have, uh, limits to transparency, something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Um, you know, you're too transparent, you might cause a huge panic throughout the organization, but on the other hand, transparency is one of our, uh, our major foundational stones to uh, agile, so this is a very important thing. Uh, project reporting, is the burn down enough? Um, I've run into a few situations where upper management wants more than a burn down. I thought, oh, that's interesting. Let's see what we can come up with. And the project definition phase, we just went through one a few uh, weeks ago that was very, I think, very successful. And I thought I just mentioned the things that we did and bounce them off of you and see what you guys have had is in relationship to, to these points. And then finally want to put out the feelers on this pragmatic marketing thing. Does it collide with uh, with Agile, or does it work well? All right, sounds good. Uh, what have you got there, Dale? Uh, just a couple today. Uh, mandated documentation in Agile. Uh, how do you handle situations where you're working in regulated industries where certain types of documentation are an absolute necessity, uh, and how do you deal with that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Uh, getting teams to behave more like cohesive teams. I like that one. I like that. I've got a card that's similar to that, and it's engaging the non-participative team member. And um, it may not be exactly the same topic, but I think it dovetails. A lot of times when I talk about team members that aren't participating for one reason or another, um, the lesson that I'm trying to, to get the team to internalize is that behaving more like a cohesive team is going to lead to much greater results. So any individual who's not participating, we want to know why they're not participating and help them to either uh, join the group effectively and, and contribute or to leave the group altogether. All right, we're all voted up. We've got one card here that talks about pragmatic marketing, and we've determined that none of us at the table really know too much about pragmatic marketing. Um, so let's just start off, just try to sum it up real quick and maybe see if our listeners can contribute to the discussion maybe for a future podcast. What's your question then around pragmatic marketing? Uh, we the, the company that I contract with right now um, has gotten full gone full bore into pragmatic marketing. It sounds interesting. Um, I'm just wondering when this trickles through the organization, is it going to have any impact on our agile process? Are we going to have to, is it just another one of those things you have to learn how to work around, deal with, or um, is it, does it really fit well with, uh, with agile? So I kind of want to look ahead a bit and prepare myself if, if, certain questions come up and certain mm-hmm. conflicts arise. Let's throw that question back out to our listeners and see if anyone out there wants to engage us on the topic of pragmatic marketing for a future podcast. Let us know. Use the hashtag tell Agile Coffee. And Matt, I'm looking right at you. 
I know. We could look at each other through this podcast. You know that, right? <laughs> That's right. The technology, technology. limits of yeah, technology. Yeah, yeah. Like no, no bounds. Uh, Google Hangouts. <laughs> Speaking of limits, uh, we've got a card that says limits to transparency. Larry, it's your card, so why don't you kick us off? Yeah, th- this is a very interesting dilemma almost. I, I'm the kind of a guy, I guess I'm not very sensitive when a, a person asks me what color is it and if it's green, I say it's green. You know, I, I don't tend to be very political. But on the other hand, in large organizations, if you give the wrong answer, you cause a panic where then the CEO is wanting answers and oh gee whiz, you just set out set the whole forest on fire just because you gave an answer to a question. So I was wondering and I, is there, are there limits to transparency? Personally, I'm all for it. But on the other hand, if you see the panic that it may cause in some large organizations, is there a certain balance to that the whole thing? That's what I'm struggling with, or mentally at any rate, trying to figure this out. Yeah, and I think what you what you said just makes sense. There, there's a spectrum of that, and as agile practitioners, we want to get as much transparency as is possible. But as Ken Schwaber said, you know, a dead scrum master is no good to anybody. <laughs> so you, you have to understand within the limits of your organization what's acceptable uh, information to divulge and what's not. Uh, and you, know, you can always try to push the envelope a little bit. But again, it's, it's pushing the envelope, not burning it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, that's very good. I think transparency is a hallmark to um, to agile and, and XP values, Scrum values. Um, transparency and trust go hand in hand. So if I'm going to be building credibility and trust in the organization, um, we have to be open and transparent. And um, even transparent in when we are not being transparent, if that makes sense. So if there's uh, some conversations that that I'm privy to and and I'm really not at liberty to share, I can at least tell people that, hey, this conversation is off limits and and you're just going to have to trust me on that because Mm, I'm not at liberty to share it. Um, Trust is the antidote to fear, and fear drives like 90% of the problems that I've seen in organizations. So I do anything and everything that I can to to eliminate the um, the fear involved with making decisions and and operating as a team. So um, a lot of times, you know, transparency is is a great uh, tool to use to kind of drive that out. Is is transparency ever the enemy to trust? Because, uh, c- like you said, well, yeah, uh, here we're trying to build trust, and the more they trust, more say an executive trusts me as a scrum master, the more what I say is going to be accepted and he won't panic or have that fear you're talking about. But here you are, you're trying to be honest, you're trying to build trust. Both are going side by side and all of a sudden they they collide and you've lost trust or you can't be transparent. It's a, and you painted yourself in a corner. It's a great question. I'm trying to think of a hypothetical example where, where that may be the case. I haven't come up with anything yet, but, uh, let's see. I was just about to ask you: Is there a uh, is there a situation you can describe without divulging something you shouldn't that could give us better context? Oh, just say a, a project um, um, performance, for example. How well are you doing on this project? Your burn down might not look the best, but you are making progress. Uh, and that progress, if you look at the numbers, might. St- if you look at the numbers, you would say, oh, man, you guys are never going to make it. But on the other hand, you've got some momentum set up. The morale of the team is high. You know you're plowing through your work. Uh, and the scope maybe wasn't set so clear at the beginning, and so things are popping up. But on the other hand, if you open up too much, you might set the house on fire. Well, I think in that case, um, all of the reasons that you just spelled out, you know, the numbers may look bad, but without being as transparent as you should be, you know, that's the only story that you have to tell is the numbers. So people are going to think that, you know, like you just said, the world is on fire and the house is on fire in this case. So you need to be more transparent. And I mean, it really behooves the team. You're, you're getting the upper management to trust you more. 
Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And that, in that circumstance, I think you have to be honest and go by the numbers. And sit, because this is a problem that we used to have in traditional waterfall project management it's like oh yeah everything's you know despite the fact that you didn't have burn downs but you know things were behind schedule oh we'll be okay though we'll catch up um no i think the one the good thing that you've got in agile are, are these uh, more objective kind of metrics about how far you really are uh against achieving a larger goal mm-hmm. and then that requires that does require honesty <clears throat> up the chain and you've got to be able to tell the people above you you know, look, here's going by the numbers. This is how th- I don't think this is going to get done in the time frame that you that, that you thought it was going to. And I've had a couple of instances in that that very thing has happened where management wanted some big project done. And fairly early on into the project, uh, I was looking at the numbers and saying, it's like, OK, what's our uh, what's our what's our burn down rate on this? How many stories are we completing a sprint? How many story points are we completing in a sprint? What's done? What's been? What's been done, and what remains to be done in the backlog? And in a couple of circumstances, it was very unpretty. Uh, mm-hmm. I told management about that. They didn't like it. Uh, but my prediction turned in both those uh, in both those circumstances. My prediction turned out to be right. Not anything magical, but just based on the numbers. Um, and in, in, in fact, one case, I was I was only on the I was only on the project temporarily. I was filling in for another project manager slash scrum master. Um, so I I was off that project fairly soon after this person came back from vacation. Um, <laughs> but but it, and as I understand, long after my contract even ran out with that organization, that project was still being worked on. Oh, I see. So. Yeah, I think that that sort of thing you've got to be honest. That's that's one of the that that's one of the big advantages to agile or these kind of metrics that we've got and being honest about when things are going to get done. Yeah, um, to echo that, I think the scenario, Larry, that you just proposed, where the numbers spell doom and gloom, but the other indicators are are on the uptrend. When it's the opposite scenario and the numbers are saying you know everything's great and rosy, um, that's when transparency really is hard to do because you don't want to say, well, actually, you know, things are kind of not looking so good right now, but that's when you have to, uh, you have the chance to develop so much more credibility and trust within your team. If you can have those conversations and say, well, the numbers may look good, but you know, we anticipate as, as, as Dale was just saying, you know, things could maybe not be so, so good. So let's, let's dive a little deeper into it. Or you see a series of blockers, uh, coming down the pipe that you know have to be yeah. dealt with, and, I mean, and that's our job. Procrastinate. People are procrastinating, and you say, "Listen, if we don't get this taken care of, I know for sure in the next sprint we're going to hit the wall." Right. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's raising the, the issue of risks. So that's yeah. just a little different. But uh, we're going to move on then to our next topic. Uh, let's see, Larry, you had written project reporting. Is the burn down enough? Yeah, that that's kind of dovetails into my previous uh, subject about transparency. Um, let's say we have a very very large organization that where the agile mentality. It's not an agile organization. The further the higher up you go in the hierarchy, the less agile and more traditional they become, um, and they start asking for reports that are unusual for. Um, for agile projects, like, well, where's your Gantt chart? Or, uh, well, I don't, I don't see any requirements here. When we talk about requirements, we're in this case, in this scenario, it would be like traditional requirements, you know, like hundred pages that no one reads, that kind of stuff, you know. Uh, so, yeah, the burn down is 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 my meat and drink. This is what I go by. This is what I follow very clearly, and this gives me comfort, or this tells me we we're in trouble. But on the other hand. In super large organizations, they just don't get it. I, I mean, thinking they, they you look at, look at many, there are many examples out there of um, large organizations where the higher up you go, the less agile they become. And then, then what do you do? What, what do you give them? What? Well, I've, I've, I've had this exact problem 
um, in one organization that I worked at because the department that I was brought into, they were kind of experimenting with Agile in that department. Um, everything around that department, even the, the level immediately above it, they were their expectation was that everything was going to be in Gantt charts um, and that they were going to get – they had a formulaic way of presenting – project progress information. They used to have these weekly meetings, and every project manager had to present this formulaic slide deck on on what the pro, what proje, progress of their project was. And yeah, in Agile, you've got burndowns and things like that. Uh, and you don't have these Gantt charts, and to a great extent, you can't turn one into the other. <laughs> um, if somebody wants to see where are your where are your requirements, uh, some uh, some of the agile application lifecycle management tools have the ability to export the user stories into like a text file format, so you can you know it's like okay if you uh, because the odds are you know honest. Honestly, they're probably not going to delve into it too deeply. But if they want to see a requirements document, okay, here you go. Thump. If you if you have a if you have a big backlog, you can give them the thump report. <laughs> um, and the, but as the as you if you get high enough up about progress on a project, if you've worked with your your product owner enough, you can say that you can have the team concentrate their efforts on certain things where you say, okay, for the next three sprints or something, as an example, we're going to concentrate on this aspect of functionality of the product. I see, okay. Yeah, yeah. And then for the next helpful. you know month or two after that, we're going to concentrate on the, on this other thing. And then you can kind of present them with a, with a larger sort of a traditional schedule or, or Gantt chart that says, this is how far we are along our line of of hitting these things. I've done that, and that works. Now, in Agile, obviously, you've got the opportunity to make little adjustments within all of the requirements that mean that make meeting that milestone. So you've still got all you still got all your flexibility built in, but you 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 can provide them with something resembling a Gantt chart that that shows the progress uh, and. Th- a lot of the Agile application lifecycle management tools that I've worked with, both Jira and version 1, for instance, will show you a little bar graph even within the application of how, how you are progressing in terms of uh, burning down the tasks that will accomplish a, sto- a, a story and a burn down, uh, a kind of a bar, uh, a, a progress bar on completing stories that are part of an epic. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Yes. So you can kind of use those things to assemble that sort of a bar chart thing if that's what they're looking for. I, I, I'm envisioning that if, if you've got a project that's, I don't know, three months, six months, whatever, however long, however, whatever sizing you want to apply to it, um, once you start splitting it out into the different epics, you know, and, and the different value slices um, of it, and you can start identifying them more discreetly. Then you can say, okay, here's all the value that we're going to deliver with it, and from high to low, you've prioritized it, and you can start um, showing them evidence that you've got the the features that are of more value to the company. You've got those done, and the ones that are at the bottom that are of less value, you know, they are still scheduled to be done whether they're ahead of schedule or behind schedule kind of almost isn't really it's it's almost trivial at that point because you've shown them evidence that you're delivering the highest value stuff first yeah this is good um so i think that's that's mostly what they want to see and so that if they have to meet a hard deadline if there's no slip on the date that you have to deliver at least you can say we're giving you like 80% 80% of the project, but it's the 80% that's 100% needed. That, that makes the difference. Yeah. 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 And that's, that's one of the huge benefits of Agile and Scrum is that you're, you can deliver value pretty early and you're, you're delivering demonstrable features, uh, early on in the project. Some organizations will accept that and go, that's okay. Yeah, we know you're making progress because we can actually see the progress. It's visible. Uh, they're accustomed to, you know, in, in traditional waterfall projects, of not having anything they can really see until it's done. 
Uh, and in other organizations, you will still find that they're just like, oh, okay, yeah, we, we, we know we can test it. We know we can see your progress uh, in the actual product. We still want a Gantt chart. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're wrapping up that, that topic there. Uh, if you have any questions or comments for us, how are you dealing with project reporting at your organization? Uh, let us know on Twitter with the hashtag TellAgileCoffee. Beautiful day out here. I wish every day was in the mid seventies. Oh. Well, pretty much are, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Southern much, California. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Dale, the next card is yours. It says mandated documentation in Agile. But before you do that, what, what was that? The thump rule. I like that. You're going to implement the thump rule. The th- well, uh, I, I didn't. I, I didn't actually create that thump thing. Somebody a thump document is a a big monolithic document, like a requirements document yeah. that you thump down on somebody's desk when you drop it. It makes a thump sound. <laughs> here's your good. thump doc. It's like is, here's your requirements thump document. Does that dovetail into our next topic? The mandated mandated documentation. You're thumping some documentation on the um, table. A little bit. <laughs> well, why don't you just start uh, us off then? Sure. There are. Uh, well, I haven't had to deal with this yet. I, I had to deal with the prospect of it with a a a, uh, a job opportunity I was approached about. Um, and a company that dealt in a, it was a highly regulated industry. And some of these industries for either government or, or organizational standards or, you know, ISO things that have to be met, uh, that they have to produce documentation for the functionality that they've produced. So what are some of the effective approaches to that? Uh, I, I, I know one of them on a theoretical level, is that the, you complete the documentation that's necessary for the, the functionality that you've built for the sprint within the sprint. Um, uh, are there other approaches out there where maybe you create the documentation after a series of sprints, and then you've, but that means that you've got a, a sprint where your developers really can't do anything because documentation is being written. My, my first impression is to, uh, if, if it needs to be, comprehensively documented um yeah it needs to be part of the definition of done for every story um so you know most stories will probably include some documentation component but can't you take your acceptance criteria and tie turn that into documentation or maybe there's some relationship between these acceptance criteria that people are writing anyway for this story to be done it must meet this acceptance criteria that in itself almost becomes documentation so maybe there's some tool out there or some some method of taking that. Again, this is my first inclination to use uh, acceptance criteria and turning that into a, a, at least a start for documentation. Yeah, you can't fudge in that, right, on these uh, regulated documents. So well, you can fudge. Re- no, you can't. <laughs> yeah, you, you, have to, you have to actually, it has to reflect reality. So I would think using the documentation as your definition of done would work. I've never been in that situation, but this... Seems to make sense to me. Yeah, like I said, the the, the technique that that I learned about this on a purely theoretical level was that you create the documentation within the sprints for the functionality that's built. Uh, that would, however, force analysts or or technical writers to work to modify what they've written frequently, maybe perhaps a lot more frequently than they might like. I think a lot of those people, they're and they're almost like, you know, people that work in Photoshop to that extent. They want to sit down, they want to do their work, and then they want to have to go back and, like, redo it and redo it. Have you been, in your history, have you seen these experts in documentation, these technical writers working in the sprint as, like, working on their own separate story? in the sprint to create documentation for this feature that's also being developed in the story or are they combined as one story uh the organization that i worked in where they had to create external documentation for things and this it wasn't mandated by the government they just had to do or, or anything it wasn't like they were having to adhere to iso standards or anything like that they had to produce written documentation on the features for the end users uh, so that the, they would have some kind of like an instruction manual on how to use the product. Uh, and in that organization, they, 
the people documenting it waited until a feature set was complete before they would do it. It wasn't done on a story-by-story basis. It was done on a feature-by-feature or a set of features basis. So they basically waited until a a feature or or a set of features was complete before they wrote the documentation for it. Well, I think that that, there's a few problems with that. One is that, you know, by waiting so long, yes, you, you kind of have a more comprehensive or fully functioning feature that you can you can write against. It's not changing anymore because it's probably been developed. But on the other side of the coin, I think the problem is that uh, you, you have the chance of missing things. Uh, if you're working on it in real time, like with the developers who are working on the, the feature, you're catching everything as it's being developed versus if you're waiting, you know, a few months, say, uh, until, like, the feature is fully fully completed, then you might miss some of the different features involved in that um another another aspect that i would probably pay more attention to is is who's doing the writing so if you have a technical writer who's embedded with the team and is working on is kind of maybe coming in once or twice during the the duration of the project to do this documentation you're probably not making the best use of of their resources and you're not getting the best quality. Nothing against technical writers, but I think that the people who are either developing or writing the requirements for or doing the testing of the feature probably can contribute much more than than we might initially perceive. So, again, tying it back to the acceptance criteria or some other in-line definition of done, uh, you know, check checkbox on the definition of done, if you're developing kind of at least a stub of documentation in real time, I think you have a much greater chance to have, uh, to A, not miss anything, and B, kind of be more more specific in the documentation that you're creating. And then you can always have a, a technical writer come back and review that uh, at another cadence. Maybe not in real time necessarily, but at least they've got something to work from when they do come back and kind of develop their more thorough documentation. Okay, but what do I know? I'm not a documentation specialist, and I kind of abhor it uh, in most cases because whenever I'm using documentation, I always feel that it's incomplete or you know it's it's not not doing what I need it to do. Oftentimes, it's written in in a country far far away too. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, I, I think it depends on how detailed the thing has to be and. If they really do want, if it's a government-regulated document that you have to fill out, maybe yeah. you do have to catch all the details. In that case, you would have to do it as a part of the definition of done, I would think. Uh, if they just want a user manual, which is probably the most general thing you could get, then afterwards would be fine. Yeah, that was my my specific case, too, was for a user manual that I'm often not satisfied with. But um, Anything else, then, on this topic? Shall we move on? All right, project definition phase. Yeah, we just completed a, a very interesting project definition phase where um, uh, someone got together a strategy for tackling this monster. And uh, I thought, wow, this seemed to work out pretty well for us. I thought I would just throw it out there and see what your experiences have been uh, with some of these points. First of all, we started out with the uh, pragmatic marketing priorities and scope. That was interesting to to work with, to work with it at this level. Um, we, we went through. It was kind of interesting, you know. You've got your. Um, um, they they have a mathematical formula you go through to set priorities, um, and then we did all that, and then we did our um, our user story map. I thought I'd get a picture of it because you were asking for it on Twitter. Um, it's pretty big. And uh, then we created our personas. We created the scenarios based on the personas. We conducted a technical review then. Uh, we, our first sprint was just a proof of concept sprint, and then we did a technical review of that going, is this sufficient based on what we know? And um, then we planned our first sprint, and uh, uh, away we went. So it was really quite interesting this whole little this whole little evolution um, in the pragmatic marketing phase. It was just the day that we went through the whole thing. I didn't see anything that was really horribly threatening. <laughs> it was new, uh, and I kind of liked it. Um, 
then the the personas and the user story map and all that was uh, really quite quite helpful. We still, when we discuss our uh, when we put together our sprint backlog, we still refer back to these personas. So I was wondering if um, what are some of the experiences that you have had that have made um, your definition phases, if I can put it that way, uh, uh, profitable. I love how you spelled it out. I think that was pretty comprehensive. Um, I wanted to ask a clarifying question. You said you had uh, a couple of early phases. One of them used a mathematical model. Uh, it was a lot like the um, weighted uh, shortest job first. Yes, type of weighted thing. shortest job first. In pragmatic marketing, they use something similar to weighted weighted shortest job first, but it's a they they change it a tad bit. Uh, for example, uh, the the details. The questions that you ask are different in pragmatic marketing based on compared to what I know of the uh, um, weighted uh, shortest job first process. I kind of like the pragmatic marketing questions better. They were shorter, more to the point. But you take the, the answers to those questions, you uh, assign them a value, you run them through the same formula basically as you do for the weighted job, weighted you know, shortest job first, mm-hmm. WSJF. Um, and that was that was really quite fun to watch that unfold. Um, so that kind of I thought, wow, this uh, pragmatic marketing thing might be pretty fun to work with. Can you explain that weighted shortest job first? That's a concept from from the Safe uh, yeah. Scaled Agile Framework. Okay. Um, and and I don't know if I can explain it as thoroughly as someone who might have gone through the training. But my understanding is that you you do your prioritization. Um, you get your business value of each of the different features that go into it. And then you uh, also probably have some type of uh, estimation activity, maybe by the development teams, hopefully by the development teams, right? The, the idea is that you want to get the, the, the shortest stuff out the, out the door first because this... But the shortest job with, with value, yes, right? Yeah, so not, exactly. not just any short no, job. No, that, that's the right? whole point. So that's why you, you wait it out. Uh, you you apply your your idea of what the market wants right now. What do your customers want right now? And you go through all these questions that you ask, and then it comes up with, uh, well, this is my shortest job, but it has very little value. So it it actually bubbles down to the bottom of the list. Right. Whereas um, as a, a short job with a high value gets bubbled up, and that's the whole idea is what can we get out the door first so we can start showing this to our customers. So they probably do use some kind of a calculation, but the focus is on the shorter, putting the shorter ones at the top of yeah, the list. Yeah, because you want to rule stuff, yeah. stuff out so people can right. see it. I'm all in on the personas and the story mapping. I, I've used that at PICS. I've heard you guys talk about it. Uh, I've got the patent book, and, and I think that's an amazing way to get clarity uh, from the team members and, and kind of feed it back and have that conversation with the product owner. So I think that's an invaluable part of, of the conversation. Um, another method, though, that I've used in the past is that of inceptions. Uh, and this is a, a, a device that um, Pivotal Labs uh, came and, and shared with us. So so everything that I know about inception planning is is based on, on their kind of teaching of, of what is an inception. Um, and it's as Pivotal does it. It's a two-day affair where you get all um, you get many stakeholders in the room as well as like tech leads of any of the teams that are going to be participating on it, uh, de- as many developers as you can, um, any any SMEs, whether they're DBAs or architects, uh, front-end people, um, anyone that's going to be having having a say in this this project. As, as well as, like I said, kind of some of the, the stakeholders themselves, as many of them as you can get in the room. And, and it's, it's a structured two-day, you know, and so and it's, and it's an expensive meeting, but it's, it's structured over two days. And they do, um, you know, they start off with just, you know, coffee and, and going over what is an inception and, and then doing introductions of everyone who's in the room. So we get a sense of the players. Uh, they do a high-level product concept. Um, they talk about the goals of the project itself and what's the timeline that they're proposing for the timeline. They talk about risks and, uh, and then they start breaking into like user roles. What are the different users that are going to be, um, uh, interacting with this, this project? And as they're walking through each step of the inception, they're putting, um, they're keeping track of their, 
their notes and their findings on either whiteboards or, or the tear-off um, easel pad papers stuck on the wall. So if we, we talked about risks maybe at 10 o'clock on the first day, but we come up with a risk later in the day or on day two, we add it to the list, and, and then we circle back to it. Um, and then we break into story mapping. Uh, story mapping is part of Inceptions. Uh, so we've done that there where we, you know, break down every story just like Patton describes and, and kind of break it down into, like, what are the components of, of the story? Who's going to use it and what's it going to provide to get us to the next step? Um, usually that spills into day two. We're doing more story mapping on the second day. Um, and then we talk about prioritization. So we take these stories and we start prioritizing them. And again, it's very visual. We use a very low fidelity um, approach to this where we're circled around maybe a conference table, uh, standing up, writing stories, coming to the table and writing on pieces of paper or or you know three by five cards. Usually they're bigger than a three by five card though. So they're nice and big and visible. Then we can stick them on the wall and we can move them around and we have groups come up and and move things around until no one wants to move things anymore. Um, you know, we revisit our risks before we're done, make sure that everything's covered. Then we talk about, okay, what are what are the next steps? How are we going to then take this two-day activity and turn it into our first sprint or a sprint zero if we use that? Um, and then we always end with a retrospective. So that's another important part of the inception is to kind of talk about how the inception went and what could we do better next time. So um, I put a blog post on Agile Coffee sometime back. I don't know if it was uh, um, this year. It might have been a year ago. Um, so I'll put a post to that in the show notes to this. But, uh, but I always thought inceptions were a really good way to kind of frame this project definition phase. Um, I think what you've got, though, sounds like it covers the same concerns that the inception does mm-hmm. it's just a different way so with your permission i'd like to now this is a hybrid but i definitely give i'll give you these uh, notes cool and i'll share that also on the the show notes to this uh this episode so you can go to the website agilecoffee.com slash episode 34 and see um see all of the notes for this but but let's continue do you have any feedback on either what dale had said or what i had said for the inception the uh, the inception idea sounds really Interesting, and it does match a lot of what we did here. And we were just kind of putting various elements together on the that we learned from here, learned from there, read this and read that, and, and came up with a, a program. Uh, the outcome of this is very interesting, and I'm very I'm encouraged by it. We um, we started this particular project with a better understanding of what we were supposed to do than any previous project that we've undertaken with this particular company. So uh, all that extra work, and it took us a week to, to get through this, so we barely made it. We had even, we could have taken probably a second week, but uh, we, we were off to a very strong start. Um, you know, once you get into the trenches and, you, and <laughs> things start happening, it's a, it's a little you know, you, you can't, the, the outcome is never predefined insofar as you can't guarantee where, where you'll actually end up. But we had, our starting point here was very strong and very good and extremely Do you recall um, two questions? One, what, what stage of your, what component of your planning was the most valuable? And then also which one took the most time and wish that you would have spent more time with? The user story map took the most time. Uh, but I wouldn't have re- taken anything out of this sequence of events. We needed one thing built built on the other. For example, our, our the whole pragmatic marketing version of the um, weighted shortest job first was necessary to set the tone. And then we created the personas, began to get our heads into how a person will use this. And then we took that and we added more detail by creating the scenarios. And then after that, we had a fairly decent foundation to go ahead and, and do, the, um, do the story map. I think if we were to would have done the story map cold right off the top without any introduction, yeah. we wouldn't have done quite so well on the, on the story map. Yeah. So um, I think it, it, your process parallels greatly to the, uh, the idea that I shared, the inceptions. And I agree with you. Um, the, when we did it, the couple of times that we did it, the story mapping took the most time. And, um, and yeah, to agree with you that you wouldn't get rid of any of them. They're all of, of great value. I, I'd agree with that. But I think that 
we as a team kind of got the most out of story mapping because it let us all find missing stories, missing parts of oh, features yeah. like right off the bat. And it's it's something that we couldn't have done if we were smaller groups. That was exactly what I was thinking during the story mapping phase. I thought, wow, we're catching stuff that normally falls through the cracks. And now that we have it on the board, it's not going to fall through the cracks. It'll it'll probably go up and down on this scale of what, what release does it belong to, uh, what swim lane does this you know go to? But you've got it, and now that you've got it, you can you have the flexibility or the agility to to move it up and down. And everybody's on the same page. When you move it down, everybody sees that you've moved it down, and you've had a discussion to get it to that new location. So I, I like it a lot. Going through a project definition phase, you don't do it often, but when you yeah. do, you want to do it right. And and it always, I always look forward to them. Um, because you get so much learning out, not only for the project, but also the people that you're working yeah. on the projects with. When you start out mm-hmm. just cold turkey, yeah. and say, okay, guys, this is what you want. Somebody throws together some stories, and they put it in some kind of a backlog that's halfway prioritized, probably not yeah. really properly. And you're, you've got so many questions, you're, you're lost. But yeah. if you do the definition phase like we did here or what you've, what you've mentioned, yeah. uh, you're all on the same page. Yeah. And it's expensive. Who wants to pay all those yeah. people? that are involved for a whole week to sit there and talk about stuff. That's that's a very expensive <laughs> way of doing anything, but the end result, I believe, it pays off, definitely. Yeah. All right, um, let us know how your project definition phase jives with anything that we've uh, we've discussed. Do you have any other tips or tricks that you've found, any concerns that you've heard about um, us talking through our project definition phases? Use the hashtag on Twitter, tell Agile Coffee. Got another uh, couple of cards here. Uh, let's see if we can get through one or both of them. Um, next one up, Dale, is yours. Getting teams to behave more like teams. Yeah. Ew. What are some techniques that you've used that have proven effective at getting team to people that are nominally teams, uh, groups of individuals and scrum teams, uh, to actually really work together as teams? Uh, in some cases, you know, people may have been used to agile or, or been used to doing uh, or, or or waterfall techniques, and they may have been used to working in a certain way. And, and I, I've I've run into this with people in some organizations that have been doing agile for a long time, but the individual team members still have the handoff mentality. Um, it's like, okay, I do my thing, and then I give it to this other person. How do you? encourage more of a uh, a team mentality where they're working together more on things take them out to lunch <laughs> <laughs> is that easy you, no <laughs> done well, i can i think i think I, it, I can convince management to that for that yeah what i i've i've been in a situation similar to this i i did a sales job kind of on a on a constant basis it's almost like you've got to sow the seed and then you got to keep working on it um, for example, you go, wow, I'm glad you, you did a great job in this particular or whatever. I'm really glad you did it, and you've, you've taken ownership of it, and that's great. Uh, but you're going to be gone for the next two weeks, and, and, and according to our, our, um, our next uh, backlog, we're going to need a lot of this stuff done. Who, who do you think can help you out on this? Who can... And then during our stand-ups, constantly asking you the question, do you need help? Who can help you? And, of course, the initial answer is always, I can do it, I can do it. But then you start sowing the seeds of, well, can you really do it because of sickness, because of absent, because you're out of personal time off or something? And you know what? We're not going to have time for you to do this. It's not fair for you to stay up all night long to power this through. There's a team here to help you. So who, who can... Can you hand off something? And then at the same time, you start working this um, this confidence building, these confidence building measures, playing games together, having a meal together, whatever, going for a walk to to the coffee place around the corner together, anything like that, to start building confidence. And then all of a sudden, the guy with the that owns his little corner of the universe opens up a little bit to one person, and then that one person steps in because he likes him. And he wants him to succeed, and then there, there, there's a little bit one-to-one confidence, and then you, the, the wall comes down a little bit more, and then you can get a second person involved. And uh, 
that was kind of the um, I've seen that happen and I've seen that work well for me but it is a process that takes time and constantly selling the idea that we we really can't we, we are a team and we success succeed or fail together and so on I think Going back to the concern that you had regarding the handoffs, first of all, try to avoid the handoffs um, by having people pairing, for example. If you have a developer and a QA person pairing, um, then you're not really you're not really dependent on handoffs because they're working together as it is. So any any handoff of you know going from dev to test is is probably faded into the actual production of the work itself. Um, Another another thing to pay attention to is um, having people with that T-shaped knowledge that we talk about all the time. So, so no one is is a specialist on the team. They're all uh, they're all more generalists. I guess that's maybe not quite right. What I want to say is everyone's everyone's very good at most of the things, but but they might be expert in in one or one other thing. So a developer in in C sharp um, really knows that, but they also know. What it means to do testing and what it means to, uh, you know, dive into requirements or, or talk about UI and other, other aspects of getting this feature built. Um, so then the handoffs themselves aren't, uh, if you have someone with the eye shape knowledge, so they don't have that general capacity to understand other people's, uh, domains, um, then you have the, the handoff. Well, my, my development is done and what do I know about testing? So I'm just throwing it to you now. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas right. if they have that T-shaped knowledge, they're at least um, um, sensitive to the other people's domains. Right. Okay. Well, then, moving on, our last card uh, says engaging the non-participative team member. And I wrote that um, just because that seems to be a topic that comes up from time to time within any organization. Uh, people participate, and that's... It's not a bad thing in and of itself. Um, although we're talking about teams, we want the teams to work as teams and each, you know, contribute and and be sensitive to each other's efforts and opinions. Um, but why? First of all, why aren't people participating? And then, what can we do about what can we do about that? So I I wrote this thinking that the non-participative team member could be someone who's just quiet and observing by nature. Maybe they're a less vocal person. So they don't tend to just jump into conversations, um, or they're they're maybe shy or, or withholding for some reason, um, just as a nature of their personality. Um, that's kind of on the very benign end of the spectrum. They're not trying to disturb the team or actively uh, be an impediment to the team. They're just maybe not used to that operation of working. Um, and then you kind of move through the spectrum to to people who. Maybe um, maybe they don't tar- participate because they've been burned before. Maybe people haven't listened to their opinions in the past, so they feel like they're neglected. Um, and, and so that might take a little bit more prodding and coaching to get them to, to give it another try. And then you've got kind of on the other end of the spectrum the people who are kind of more like crossing their arms and rolling their eyes and, humph, I don't really have much to say about this anyway just because... You know, you guys are on the wrong track, or I don't really care what other people say. I want to do it my way. So they're really not a team player to begin with. So um, I want to throw it to you guys. Have you seen people like this in your current teams, and how have you worked with them to get them back into the fold? Yeah, I was thinking that this topic is not as easy as it may appear on the surface uh, because of the complexity of every because of the complexities that can enter into this there's a m- dozens and dozens of reasons for a person not to want to share right and i've only <clears throat> listed four or five yeah, and, right, and there, exactly. there are plenty more there's lots uh, somehow you have to build this this foundation of trust and where where the environment is not threatening on the other hand if you have uh, somebody that knows everything and thinks everyone else is a moron, then that's a, just, that's a, a very difficult situation. And then you, maybe you even have to sit down with that person. Yeah, through that out as an extreme, for yeah, sure. But, yeah, but it pops up. Yeah. He goes to get involved. I had, at one workplace, um, one person who was quite like that. He he was the, the know-it-all, and he was there before a lot of... It was a startup, and he was there as one of the earliest uh, members of the team, 
And uh, so we started building the team around this person or, or building the teams up, and he was on, on a team, I should say. And as new people came on, they just quickly realize that they're not going to make any progress talking to this person, so why even talk to him? And then at some point, the whole team was thinking, well, we're working as a team minus that person, so <laughs> so what do we do about that? And, um, you know, we, we had different approaches to try to get that person to engage in, in constructive ways, and then... Uh, it was, like I say, a rather extreme position. We had to end up um, having that person removed not only from the team but the organization just because he wasn't uh, wasn't complying, wasn't a team member at all. But, I mean, that's not always the case. Maybe, maybe they have a reason for being – they think they're the expert. They're of a fixed mindset where they, they don't really think that they have much to uh, – to contribute otherwise because they have all the answers themselves so why should they really be a part of the conversation um and 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 my approach to that was just working with that person using a lot of empathy and asking you know why why they're not why they feel that they can't get anything out of the conversation or why they feel that the team can't benefit from a debate with that person and uh, what we uncovered was there was a lot of fear with that person. They they were so protective of their, their silo of information and maybe being found out that they don't have all the answers because, of course, no one has all the answers. And, um, and getting them to understand that by admitting that they don't have all the answers and by asking for help from time to time, they're not only helping the team, but they're helping themselves grow too. Um, that was rewarding because then we took a skeptic, someone who wasn't, contributing and and made them a a great um model within the organization um to other people who may have held similar beliefs i think that's it you have to find out why this person has a know-it-all mentality or has these walls and then you have to address those reasons and it might be more than one reason fear uh trust and all kinds of stuff i'm dealing with people is very can be very complex but on the other hand you don't want to just use them and lose them you know you don't want to just throw them out the window because they're not doing what you want you do need to spend some time with them to see if you can't bring them to the next level of excellence and that usually works yeah you gotta have a lot a lot of patience yeah that's certainly our jobs as, as coaches and mentors of the team um is to ask questions listen be very empathetic, get to the root cause, and then start discovering a solution with them, not mm-hmm. just on our own yeah. and, and telling them they're going to follow this solution, but, but with them, what's, what's, what can we work on together? Addressing the fear, uncertainty, and doubt is usually the big part of it. Um, and then just moving on and hopefully succeeding as a team. Well, I guess that brings us to the end of our cards um, I want to thank Dale Ellis at the Digital Dale for being here, as well as Larry Lawhead at Larry Lawhead. Good time as always, guys. Yes. Thanks indeed. for thanks for having me. I always enjoy this. Yes. And thank you, dear listeners, for listening once again to episode 34 of the Agile Coffee podcast. Do us a favor and hit us up on Twitter and or go to iTunes or Stitcher. Let us know how we're doing. Leave a review. Having said all that, I want to thank you and uh, let you enjoy the rest of your day. And if there's coffee involved, I hope there's friends as well. Coffee.